Tonight's topic is called God's Great Judgment. And before we begin, I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, tonight, as we open the Bible together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present. We ask for wisdom. We pray that you would guide our understanding as we open the Bible together. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do want to say, for the recording's sake, because I know that there are some of you that are joining us via the video and you're watching it after. And I want to say that as long as this building is here, if you come by during one of the programs, we can give you the materials that you may have not been able to get simply because you're not here live. Does that make sense? So, so if you're watching this by video and you happen to be able to, you're thinking like, I would love to get the magazines or the free gifts, just come by at some point and, you know, we'd be happy to share those materials with you. We have all the previous handouts from the previous nights available for you as well. Tonight, I'm going to do this in a question and answer format, and I'm going to begin with this question. According to the Bible, who must appear in God's heavenly court? Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to notice verse 10. Here's what it says. For we must, how many? All, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. According to the Bible, how many people appear before God's judgment seat? How many people? Everybody. That's what the Bible says, right? Romans 14, 12 says, so then, how many? Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. According to the Bible, how many people appear to give, their, uh, to give an account before God? Everyone. Every single person. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis here. It says every one of us shall give account of who? Himself. You know, in the recent media um, and even in, in, you know, in, in, in the study of psychology and, and these different areas of science, there is a growing um, emphasis on, you could say, other areas of blame. Like, for example, um, if you're a psychologist, you might counsel a patient and you might say that some repressed memories from their childhood are responsible for some of their actions. And, uh, you know, if you're a psychiatrist, you might say there's a chemical imbalance that led you to the behaviors that, you know, you're, you're so forth. Now, this was a Time magazine article, and this is about genetics, but it's also giving the idea that heredity may also contribute to your behavioral issues. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that in these areas of science are all wrong. My point is that the Bible teaches that at some point, every single person will give account of his actions before God. Does that make sense? Now, when does the judgment begin? Now, I'm going to do something interesting for you tonight. I'm going to read some verses that you've probably read before. But I want you to look closely at the timing of these verses. Are you with me? So let's notice Acts 17, verse 31. Look closely. The Bible says, and this is Paul speaking. This is on um, when he was on Mars Hill. He said, because he hath appointed a day in the which, what are the next three words? He will judge the world. Now let's pause for a moment. If I asked you, according to the Bible, in Acts 17, verse 31, 
when Paul was on Areopagus and he spoke to the people there, had the judgment yet taken place or had it begun at that point, yes or no? No. Notice that he says God has appointed a specific time in which he will judge. He didn't say he has judged, but he says he will judge the world in righteousness. Now let's keep going. By that man whom he hath ordained. Has God appointed a specific time to begin the judgment, yes or no? Yes, it says he has appointed a what? A day. Did you see that? He has appointed a day. And has he chosen someone to preside over the judgment? Yes, he has. Who's that person? The rest of the verse says, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now, that's obvious. Who is in charge of the judgment? It's Jesus, okay? Now, here's Acts 24, verse 25. This is when Paul was before Felix, the Roman governor. I want you to notice what he, he said to him. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, I'm going to come back to that, and what else? Judgment, how? To come. Notice that when Paul spoke to the Roman governor Felix, he spoke of a judgment that was still in the future. He said it was a judgment to come. Does that make sense? And notice, the Bible says Felix trembled. You know, you've probably already picked up these kinds of seminars that we hold. These aren't those like, be all you can be, like, you know, a feel-good kind of, you know, this is not that. We're a Bible-intensive, <laughs> prophecy-centered seminar. Does that make sense? And it's not that we want you to feel bad, but we're going to present the Bible as it is. You know, that's our goal. Now, notice that Felix, after hearing this, he trembled and he said, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Now, I'm going to make a little digression here, but this is one of the saddest points in Scripture. Felix was under conviction, okay? He, it says he trembled. And he said to Paul, Paul, when things are better, when, when there's another convenient time, I'm going to call for you. But you know, the Bible never records Felix and Paul talking again. And I want to challenge you. You know, it doesn't matter if it's here in the seminar or if you're watching something on TV, if you're reading something in your Bible during devotions. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you and you're under conviction, don't wait for a better time to act on that conviction. Because sometimes if you wait, that chance never comes back again. Now, while we've covered this, I'm going to re remind you of, we're still talking about the timing of the judgment. Now, let's review something. Several nights back, I showed you that in the book of Daniel chapter 7, there was a sequence of creatures. There was the lion, the bear, the leopard. Do you remember this? And one of the points that I made to you is that if you read Daniel 7 through, just in one sitting, you will discover that there is a sequence that is repeated three times. The sequence is the fourth beast, the ten horns, the little horn, and always after the little horn is the judgment. Okay? Now, I'm going to read to you something that Martin Luther the reformer said in his day, okay? And this is what he said. I hope the last days of what? Judgment is not far. I persuade myself verily, it will not be absent full how long? 300 years longer 
for God's word will decrease and be darkened for want of true shepherds and servants of God. Now, I have the reference there just so that if you wanted to look it up for yourself. Now, here's my question. Martin Luther lived in the 16th century, okay? And Martin Luther said that the judgment would not be absent or it would not be more than how many years? 300 years. Now, how did Martin Luther come to that conclusion? Well, let me tell you, we studied this, right? We looked at the sequence. Now, I wanna just remind you of something. Let's review. The lion represented what kingdom? Babylon, right? So when you see the lion come up, that means what kingdom is in power? Babylon, does that make sense? Okay, don't miss this. When you see the bear come up, what does that mean about the lion kingdom? It's done, does that make sense? Okay, let's keep going along this train of thought. When you see the leopard come up, what does that mean about the bear kingdom? It's done. When you see the fourth beast come up, what does that mean about the leopard kingdom? It's done. When I see the 10 horns, what does that mean about the fourth beast? It's divided, right? When I see the little horn, what does that mean about three of the 10? They're gone. Now, don't miss this. When I see the word judgment, that must mean that the little horn has what? Ended. Now, we learned that the little horn has a reign. It rules from 538 to 1798. And that's how Martin Luther deduced that sometime after the little horn, there is going to be in heaven the beginning of a divine what? Judgment. That's why Martin Luther said, I don't believe that it will be more than 300 years from my time. Martin Luther wrote these words in the 16th century, like 15 something. I don't know the exact date, but it was in that period that he lived. Now, when we studied last night about the cleansing of the sanctuary, we learned that prophecy had a very specific time frame. It said after 2,300 days. And yesterday I shared with you that this date, 1844, there's something very particular about this date. So if you go back in time, if you studied history, you would discover that during this period in the United States, there was this movement called the Millerite Movement. And it was started by a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller. And if I could summarize it, it was very simple. He studied the prophecies, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus would return sometime in the mid-1840s. So this movement gathered momentum, and all in, up and down the eastern seacoast, because this is where America was settled at that point, there were five million pieces of paper, they were called tracts, that had information about this particular teaching. Now, at the peak of the movement, they say about 50,000 people considered themselves Millerites. And that movement was going on in the United States during this time period, 1840 to 1844. Okay, anybody recognize who this person on the screen is? Karl Marx. Now, I know you, if you know your history about Marx, Marx was the, one of the proponents of socialism, right? He and this man in Paris by the name of Frederick Engel, they became friends, they wrote together, but it was Karl Marx who in Paris in 1844 penned this specific phrase. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. 
did communism impact, you know, socialism, which led to communism, did this impact people spiritually? Um, did this impact a lot of people spiritually, yes or no? Don't forget, there's still over a billion people that live under the system, right? And I don't want you to miss this. One of the, one of the pillars of this whole so socialistic idea was that God wasn't real, okay? Now, when did the seed of this particular movement find its, you know, most famous adherent? When did he, when did he articulate these words? In the year 1844. Some of you know who this is. Charles Darwin. So, do you know, now, now this is going to surprise some of you. Um, Charles Darwin's book was not originally titled The Origin of the Species. You want to do something interesting? Go, not now, but later tonight, go and research what the original title of The Origin of the Species was. It was much longer. And you will understand when I say this, if you understand the original title, you will understand how that philosophy impacted Germany much, many, many years later, okay? But we won't talk about that now. The book was published in 1859, but he actually finished the whole book by the year 1844. If you actually Google this, you will discover that this puzzled many scientists because it's called Darwin's Delay. He finished the book, but he didn't go to press for many, many years, over a decade, okay? Now, I wanna ask you a question. Did evolution impact people spiritually, yes or no? Now, this is gonna sound strange, but I believe that if the Bible is true, and I believe it's true, then I believe that God created the earth. Does that make sense? Now. I know that there are some of you in here that may have advanced degrees, and some of you watching may, may as well. You should know that as Darwin's theory has gone through the paces, most scientists today don't accept Darwinism as Darwin taught it. It has proved to be untenable. So the new form of Darwinism is called Neo-Darwinism, which is basically the new Darwinism. But you have to know something. Um, modern philosophy and modern science has kind of taken a new divergent path when it comes to explaining origins. And the idea is that there are, or there were intelligent creatures that helped form the current world and, you know, some of the things that, that we take for granted in our world today. Now, while this may sound like something that easily fits what I'm saying, I'm sharing this with you because some of you may know, like, there was a Ridley Scott movie by the name of Prometheus. And if you've seen it, the premise is that these more intelligent beings came and they populated planets that were barren with their DNA. Like this is the kind of the philosophy that has been promoted in modern science. Now, I'm only sharing this to say that the idea of an intelligent design has begun to take deeper root in modern science today, okay? Intelligent design doesn't believe in God, but they do understand that evolution as it was taught was untenable, okay? Now, why am I saying this? 
Darwin's theory overturned years of Christ Judeo-Christian values, a, a worldview about origins. And don't miss this. This theory impacted people spiritually in a huge way. Are you with me? Now, <clears throat> this man on the screen is another figure in American history that has made a huge impact. This is Joseph Smith. Now, Joseph Smith is the founder of a religion that today we call the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I, I have Mormon friends, and they're wonderful people. But if you look at Mormonism from a Christian standpoint, it does not hold up to the biblical test of accepting the Bible as a whole. If you speak with Mormons, they'll always say it like this. We believe the Bible as it is correctly translated. Now, that's their way of getting an out whenever the Book of Mormon contradicts the Bible. And they believe that their more recent revelation is more accurate than the Bible. Now, I want you to know that if you believe that Joseph Smith was, you know, the translator of the Golden Tablets, you will run into some problems if you want to believe your Bible as it reads. Mormonism teaches that there are some sins that Jesus cannot forgive. They also teach that Jesus and Satan were once brothers. And there are many, a host of other teachings that are unbiblical that this church promotes. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Joseph Smith sealed his fate when he was assassinated in Illinois in the year 1844. Now, let me tell you, if you read his history, he kind of had a sketchy life. He got arrested in New York. He fled with his followers. He was, uh, I think he got arrested more than once for adultery and other things. But the point is that his followers would have probably ended up realizing the, the, the farce of this whole thing, except for the fact that he, in their eyes, became a martyr when he was killed, right? And that's when everything kind of got covered up. And today, Mormonism is a, not only a huge religion, but it's a huge business, and um, it's no secret, um, I used to live in Hawaii. Um, there's parts of Hawaii that are privately owned. In fact, I think most of the islands are, is privately owned. I could be wrong on that. But that church owns massive portions of that particular part of the world. And uh, it's no secret that Mormonism, while I believe that the people are wonderful people, I think that it's a system that has deceived people about the character of God. And that was something that was a seminal moment that happened in the year 1844. Now, most of you will not know who this is, but his impact on modern Christianity cannot be underestimated. If you have read the Left Behind series, it's because this man's teachings were disseminated and ultimately picked up by Tim LaHaye. His name is John Nelson Darby, and he is the first person ever recorded to have taught what we now call today the secret rapture. I want to ask you a question. Does that teaching, has it reached millions of Christians around the world, yes or no? Yes. Now, please don't miss this. On Tuesday night, we are going to talk about this, okay? Is it pre-tribulation? Is it mid? Is it post? We'll talk about that on Tuesday night. Please don't miss that.
But I don't want you to miss this. All of these things, they have something in common. They impacted people spiritually. Are you with me? Here's another man that you probably would not recognize. His name is Andrew Jackson Davis. Not to be confused with Andrew Jackson, okay? Andrew Jackson was one of, Andrew Jackson Davis was one of the first people that made prominent and made mainstream the idea of talking with the dead. Now, you just have to go back in American history. You remember the Salem witch hunts? Remember that? Look, our, our ancestry in the United States, they were, if anything, they were very, very wary of anything that smacked of witches, wizards, and talking to the dead. They, you know, they, they burned people or, or drowned them to death if they thought they had any connection. Well, the reason why today Christians don't even blink when you talk about Harry Potter or crossing over to, the reason why is because of him. He's the one that made spiritualism mainstream, okay? There's one more guy that I have to tell you about. I can't pronounce his name. But his impact in the world is huge, okay? How many of you have ever heard of the Baha'i faith? Okay, so unless you've traveled a lot, you may not have ever heard of this faith. But I'll, I'll tell you, like, the Baha'i faith is really a form of something called universalism. I once picked up one of their tracts, and this is what it looked like. In the center, there was a picture of paradise. And then there was a, there was a, little, a, a little spot for Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, all these little religions. And then it said that all roads lead to paradise. So the Baha'i faith basically is a form that says everybody will be saved. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, okay? Now, I know that for most Christians growing up in the United States, we've probably never heard of Baha'i faith. But around the world, their followers number in the millions, okay? Guess what? His first vision was in the year 1844. Now, you know what's funny to me is that these things that I'm describing to you, they're not small things like communism, evolution, Okay, these things are not little things, and yet they all found their origins in the year 1844. It's like Satan said, okay, it's time to put it into overdrive because something is about to happen. Well, let me tell you something, folks. Satan knows prophecy better than any of us in here tonight, amen? And he wasn't going to just sit around. He realized that something was happening. Now, I want to talk to you about the judgment. We're going to talk about some particulars. Every court, well, I should say every impartial court, goes through some steps. Because you don't just show up in court and the judge looks at you and says, ah, he looks guilty. There's actually a process, right? And so it's called discovery, well, or investigation, right? They do all their due diligence, right? Here's what it says in Daniel 7, verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the what? The books were opened. Please tell me, according to the Bible, when the judgment begins, what's opened? Books. Now, just note this. It's plural. We're going to talk about those books in just a moment. 
What happens after the investigation is done? The Bible says in Revelation 22, 11. Now, this is one of the unique verses in the Bible. If you go through the whole Bible, almost everywhere else, it says, let the sinner forsake his way, let the unrighteous man, you know, his thoughts, like all of these things. Not Revelation 22, 11. It says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. This is what the, the Bible describes as the final verdict when the judgment finishes. This is a unique passage in scripture. And then what happens after that? Well, then there's some kind of sentencing. And here's what it says in the next verse. And behold, Jesus says, I come how? Quickly. And my what? Now, please don't miss this. When Jesus comes the second time, he says, my what? Reward is with me. Now, let's use common sense. Before Jesus comes, does it make sense that it has to be decided who receives what reward? Does that make sense? And so this is what's happening right now. The Bible tells us that there is a judgment and the books are open. Now, does God know who's going to be saved and lost? Yes, but you have to remember God does not do things in the, just in his infinite mind without letting the onlooking universe understand his fairness. Does that make sense? The Bible said that in that courtroom, there was 10,000 times 10,000 that stood before him. So the idea is that God is transparent. He wants his beings to see him being just. Now, let's talk about these books for a moment, and let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. We're going to find out something about these books. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the what? The books were open. This is the judgment. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, in the judgment, we know that there is one book that's named. It's called the book of what? book of life. Here's what it says. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their what? According to their works. So this is a pretty broad description of how the books are used in the judgment. Does that make sense? And we already know the name of one of the books. It's the book of what? Life. Now I'm going to tell you right now, seminars like this, we cover stuff. You might have been in church 20, 30 years and have never heard a presentation on the judgment, okay? But this is one of those verses, it's there, and it's telling us that, the, that there is a book called the book of life. Let's notice what else it says. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of what? A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Do you know that the Bible tells us that there is a record of all, not only the deeds, but the thoughts even of the, of the righteous? This is what the Bible calls it. It's called the book of what? The book of remembrance. So you may do things that no one ever sees. God sees it, okay? And that's what the Bible says. Now look at Jeremiah 22, 2 verse 22. The Bible says, for though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine what? Iniquity is what? Marked. It doesn't give us the name of a book, but does God record sins? It does. 
And I don't know if you realize, but when we covered the sanctuary service yesterday, we learned that when that blood was sprinkled on the veil, that was simply a symbol of what God has in his heavenly record. Does it look like our primitive books? Maybe, I don't know. But make no mistake, the Bible says that the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Are we together? So this is how the Bible describes that there is a record in the judgment. What does the judgment take into account? The Bible says, for God shall bring every what? Work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, folks, God is fair. He doesn't take into account what family you were born into. You don't have control over that. How tall you are, the color of your skin. God doesn't take that into account. He takes into account your, your works. Guess what? Every one of us has control over that, right? What we do. So that's one of the things that the Bible says. That's not all. Jesus said, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of what? Judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The Bible says not only are our, our actions brought into the judgment, our works, but also what else? Our words. Did you know that the average person in one week talks enough to fill up a book to have 320 pages. Some of you, I think, are beyond average, just so that you know. <laughs> and so, look, if you lived at this pace of writing a book every week, by the time you're like 65, you could have a library with like 300 books, you know? Now, again, that's just average. And, and again, why, why am I saying this? You know, sometimes we don't take into a consideration that there is a record, right? Here's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the what? The counsels of the hearts. Now, let me pause here for a moment. When we talk about the heart in the Bible, more often than not, we are talking about the mind. And when it says the counsels of the heart, you know, you can say and even do nice things, but if your motive is wrong, it taints everything, right? So the Bible even says that God takes into account the motives, the counsels of the hearts. And I'm saying that to you because unless we are cleansed by God's power, then we, we would be in trouble. Does that make sense? Because if the spring is corrupt, then everything that comes out of it is corrupt, right? Okay. Now, is there a standard that is used in the judgment? Like, for example, every state has their own penal code, right? Every state. And, of course, there's a federal code as well, you know, federal law. The Bible tells us very clearly, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be what? Judged by the law of what? So I want to ask you, when James talks about the law of liberty, what's he talking about? It's the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's from the Ten Commandments. That's from, the ten, that's from God's law. Now, in every court case, you have the plaintiff, you have the defendant, right? 
And you know, for, for, for lack of a, of a you know, better use, I'm just going to call him the, the, the persecuting attorney. But here, here is how the Bible describes this role. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God. How often? That's Satan's role. Satan wants to throw the book at you, okay? And it's like, I mean, if, for, for lack of a better expression, Satan wants the full penalty of the law every time someone breaks it. Now, God is in, according to prophecy, the judgment has begun. Revelation says the hour of his judgment is come. Not will come, but is come. At some point it will end. And after it ends, Jesus says, I come quickly. But when does it end? Well, notice the Bible says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, Jesus says, this is the next verse, I come how? Quickly. So let's pause. We learned in this seminar that there are signs that precede the second coming of Jesus. And those signs tell us that we've looked at it in two ways. We are in the feet, right? Do you remember that? We are in the feet of the image. And the signs in Matthew 24, they're fulfilling. All those things that Jesus said are the beginning of sorrows, those are fulfilling. Which means if Jesus is coming soon, that means that the judgment must be ending soon. Does that make sense? Now, folks, I want to share a story with you tonight that will put this in perspective for you. You know, when Martin Luther began to speak against the Catholic Church's abuses, you know, he was particularly upset about the selling of indulgences, the collection for all of these things about purgatory, and, and all these things. As he wrote, as he preached, as he taught, he created powerful enemies in the church against him. Well, guess what? He realized, his friends realized, that they had no scruples to just get rid of him. So what did they do? They kidnapped him. His friends, they kidnapped him, and they secreted him away in an abandoned castle in a city called Wartburg. You can go there today, and you can see the evidence of the story that I'm talking about. Secreted away in this hidden location, he continued to write, and he fueled the Reformation. What happened is, one night, as he was there, he had a vision. And in his vision, the devil appeared to him. And the devil appeared to him holding this giant sheet of paper. And he said to Martin Luther in the vision, he said, Martin Luther, are these your sins? As Martin Luther looked at the list, sure enough, these were a list of all of the things that Martin Luther had done wrong. Have you ever had a, like a high school or college reunion and you meet your friends from your past and they say something like this. I hope they say this to you because I don't want to feel lonely, but they say like, you were really crazy back then. <laughs> Do you remember what you did? And like, 
all of a sudden, you realize, like, oh, man, I had to my mind blocked that out, but I, I, I just remembered it again, you know? Like, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not proud of, I've made horrible mistakes. And, you know, when, when I'm reminded of those things, let me just share a quick story. When I was um, at summer camp one year up in upstate New York at a, at a fancy camp called Camp Berkshire, I was up there. And um, I borrowed someone's bicycle. And back in those days, freestyling and BMX racing was becoming popular. And one of, this, one of these trends was they removed all the brakes off of these bikes. Okay, yeah, you already can see where this is going. So anyway, um, so I was riding this bike around. And there was, I don't know, 600, 700 kids at the summer camp. I remember I was, there was this huge mansion where everybody stayed. And it had this giant like fountain in the driveway. There was this portico that you would like go down and then come out of the front of the, the mansion. And one day I was riding this bike that I had borrowed, but it had no brakes. The idea was if you wanted to stop, you just put your foot like you jam it between the fork and the tire, which is so unsafe. But anyway, so I was riding this bike and I was trying to, you know, like gain momentum. And I finally decided I'm gonna go down the road, I'm gonna go down the fountain, around the fountain and come back up. Well, unfortunately for me, as I was picking up speed going down this big hill, a group of young people came right out of the front door, maybe about 10 people. They came out and they were right standing in the road in front of this fountain. And I don't know why, I didn't have the sense of mind to shout, to scream, or to make noise. And so as I was coming down, I realized I was about to impact this whole group of people. Fortunately, right as I was getting closer, I saw that there was like a little gap. So they were standing around talking, they weren't paying attention, and there was a little gap of people, and I thought, I could probably make it right through that. Well, as I picked up speed, I, I started going right in that little, I aimed for that gap, but right as I went inside the group, a girl stepped right in front of me. She got thrown so far, and I flipped over on the bike. But I think you understand this. She was a young girl, and she got contusions, like major. And I don't know, like, if, if you're a parent and you have a daughter, I'm sure you're thinking scars, right? So they rushed her to the hospital. I had contusions too, but like everybody was not concerned about me, okay? And so the girl went to the hospital. They called her parents. They called my parents. And I remember like I was horrified because when she came back, she looked like a mummy. Like she was wrapped in bandages and everybody was saying like, you know, her face was scraped, she's gonna have scars. Like, you know, for a young girl, that's gonna be like a pretty devastating thing. So I was now quickly, like in this 700 plus person camp, I became infamous. Everybody that saw me was like immediately, hey, you're the guy that ran the girl over, right? And you know, this is the thing, for years after, it wasn't just that camp. Every year after, it was, I was not, I didn't even have a name. I was, you're the guy that ran the girl over, you know? <laughs> and I gotta tell you, like, whenever I think of that story, it's just a reminder, like, one event can be so traumatizing to a person, right? Imagine if someone could show you everything you've ever done. 
So Martin Luther, he looked at this scroll and he was overwhelmed. He literally looked at it and thought, I'm the worst sinner. <laughs> well, this, the devil was having a great time with this. He pushed his advantage and he said, Martin Luther, is this you? And he finally had to admit defeat. He said, yes, it's me. But he noticed that the devil had his hand covering the bottom of this piece of paper. And he actually had the courage. Now, if you go to the castle at Wartburg, there is a stain of ink on the wall because Martin Luther, according to this history, he picked up an inkwell, like he, not the inkwell, but the ink bottle, and he hurled it at the devil. You got to admit, that takes some courage, right? So he, he said to Satan, like, Satan, you know, move your hand because I can't see what's written at the bottom. So Satan wouldn't move his hand. And he said, Satan, move your hand. But Satan wouldn't. So finally he said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to move your hand. And as Satan moved his hand there at the bottom of this long list of sins, it actually said, these sins of Martin Luther are covered by the blood of Jesus. And folks, I want you to think about this story because I want you to understand in the judgment, it's not that you have done 5,110 good things and 5,130 bad things, and now you're found wanting. That's not it. You know, the truth couldn't be, that couldn't be further from the truth. The fact is that all have sinned, and the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what Satan wants. He wants to just throw the book at you. But I want to remind you of something. You see, we all learned last night that when that sacrifice was brought, they caught some of the blood. Do you remember that? And there's something you have to know. You see, in the heavenly record, when you ask for forgiveness, your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, please don't forget something. The Bible says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So I want you to think about this for a moment. If you have all of your known sins... Did you notice what I said there? I said all of your what? No. Known sins. Because God is merciful. He only works with what you know, okay? But if you have all of your known sins confessed and the blood of Jesus covers them, when God looks at that record of sin, he no longer sees the sin. Why? Because the, the blood covers it. And whose blood is it? Jesus. It's Jesus' blood. And you know what? That blood is a symbol for Jesus' life. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. What kind of life did Jesus live? A sinless life. Do you realize that if you have confessed all of your known sins and the blood of Jesus covers them, when God looks at your record, it is as though you have never sinned. We are not saved because we have done good things. Does that make sense? We are saved on the merits of someone who lived a sinless life. And if you ask for his blood to cover your sin, I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter what you've done. But if you have that gift applied to your record, you can face the judgment with confidence. And no matter what, what happened, let's say 
you went out tonight and you got into a car accident, God forbid you should do that because you got to be here Tuesday night, okay? But <laughs> if something would happen, the next thing you would see is the face of Jesus, amen? You can have that confidence tonight that Jesus' blood covers your sin, amen? As we close tonight, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there is a judgment that every person will face and give account of himself. And we know that the law demands obedience and the wages of sin is death. But we also know that Jesus offers his life, his perfect life, for every sinner who accepts that gift and asks to be forgiven. Lord, for each one here tonight, my prayer is that they might accept that gift. They might experience the cleansing blood of Christ. They might experience the confidence that comes when we know that we are right with God. Give us power to live for you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.